If you don't know me, my name is Holly, and it is my pleasure to be here today diving into the Word of God. And I just wanted to say, that is my favorite hymn. And of course, like, who wants to start teaching already emotional? But thank you, Jan, because <laughs> you got me in all the feels with that one this morning. Um, but it is just, it is the perfect place, I think, to really start the section of Scripture that we're getting ready to go through, just focusing on the faithfulness of God. Um, so... With that being said, we are going to be continuing in our study of 2 Timothy with chapter 2, verses 1 through 13 this morning. Last week, Angela Nadaleski walked us through chapter 1 of 2 Timothy. She discussed Paul's attitude towards his calling and his life. She said he had entrusted it all to Jesus. He has entrusted his life for all of eternity to Jesus. This is such an important concept for us to hold on to. Our world is full of uncertainty. It's becoming more and more difficult to distinguish between the different levels of deception in our media, news, politicians, schools, everything. But we can know for certain is that Jesus Christ is the same today or yesterday, today, and forever. We can also, like Paul, entrust ourselves to Jesus. We can stand firm in the knowledge of his unchanging character, his faithfulness. Our passage from last week included a cornerstone verse that is probably familiar to many of us because of the old hymn, For I Know Who I Have Believed. For I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. This is a truth that we can rest on. Jesus is able to keep all that we have committed to him. This idea of Jesus not only being able but being the only one who is able has really been resonating with me this week. On Sunday morning, Pastor Doug concluded our study of Jude with what has become a very familiar benediction for us. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, <coughs> excuse me, and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Jesus is able to keep us from stumbling. He is able to present us blameless before his own glory, righteousness, and holiness. We, as sinful man, are able to do nothing. No amount of striving is going to present us as blameless. If you are uncertain about where to entrust your heart, it's just Jesus. He is the only one who can keep what we entrust to him. No politician, no scientist, no celebrity, no philosopher, just Jesus. In these first two chapters of 2 Timothy, we see Paul imploring Timothy to remember not just his calling, but who his calling is founded in and dependent upon, he who is able. In chapter 2, we see a continuation of Paul's exhortation to Timothy to remain steadfast and endure to the end. He continues to remind Timothy of his responsibility to the gospel of Jesus. Let's get into the text this morning. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 2 says, You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. These things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful people who will be able to teach others also. Immediately preceding these verses, Paul has been contrasting the unfaithfulness of Phygelus and Hermogenes with the faithfulness of Onesiphorus. The former had deserted Paul in his time of need. Basically, when the chips were down, these men cashed out and left the table. 
Perhaps they saw the potential persecution to come and decided to avoid being labeled as a criminal along with Paul. The latter, Onesiphorus, stuck by Paul and continued to minister to him while he was imprisoned. This blessed Paul and encouraged him. Out of this comparison, Paul switches his focus back to Timothy. He addresses Timothy directly here with these words, you, therefore my son. He is calling Timothy out here and saying, look, I know these others lost sight of their calling. I know they ran away, they hid, they deconstructed, started listening to other voices, fell away. But as for you, Timothy, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now this phrasing strikes me as unique. I doubt we often think of grace as a source of strength. As followers of Jesus and students of the Bible, we are well-versed in grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, but it is a gift of God. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. We understand the gift of grace. We define grace as unmerited favor given to the believer by God. But this is really just part of what biblical grace actually encompasses. Biblical grace is not just a gift we receive upon salvation— God is gracious to us, and his grace works within us throughout our whole lives, sanctifying us for his glory. Grace, to name just a few qualities, justifies us before a holy God, provides us access to God, disciplines us, comforts us, strengthens us. Grace is continual and allows us to take part in the work of Christ. A more complete definition of grace would be unmerited favor given to the believer by God that enables him to be or do whatever is required in keeping with the calling of our Lord. We need to note some key elements of what Paul is saying to Timothy here. First, Paul tells Timothy to be strong in the grace of Christ Jesus. Grace is the means by which we, re- we receive Christ's strength, but it is also the sphere in which we experience Christ's strength. Paul is telling Timothy he needs to live continuously in the grace of God, to operate within the grace of God. Secondly, Paul is reminding Timothy that it takes strength to teach the word of God. It is our tendency to want to soften the truth, to shave off the parts that might offend people because we fear rejection from man. Speaking truth with boldness takes great strength. This strength comes from the grace of God. We must never forget that it is merely by the grace of God that we are even able to understand and teach the word of God at all. This is not natural, but a work of the Holy Spirit in us. 1 Corinthians 2.11 tells us, for what a person's, who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person, which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. John 14.26 tells us, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The Holy Spirit reveals truth to us by the grace of God so that we can hold fast to it, so that we can teach it to the next generation. We don't just miraculously understand the things of God. This is a part of God's grace to us. Where God calls us, he gives us strength. This is not automatic. Paul had to exhort Timothy to accept the grace, for by grace through faith. This is an act of giving and receiving. God offers us grace, and we receive grace. The offer of grace alone does not justify us before God, 
we must submit our will unto the Lord and receive his gift of grace. We also have to resist the temptation to just keep looking at our problems or weaknesses and instead look to God, to the strength of the grace of God. If we are too focused on the need and not on the provider, we aren't entrusting anything to Jesus. We are still trying to figure out our own solution. We are entrusting it to ourselves. Paul tells Timothy, stand strong. Find your strength in Jesus. This is what fuels you. This is what enables you. The weakest point for us as a believer is when we are relying on our own strength to stay close to God. God wants to strengthen you with his grace. We need God's grace to purify us from our past, to preserve us in the present, and to present us in our future. God, or excuse me, Paul also instructs Timothy to entrust these truths that he has been taught to others who can continue to stand firm on the truth. This is called the ministry of multiplication. As a pastor, Timothy is a steward of truth. Ministry is not something that we just accumulate for ourselves. We are given truth to guard and protect, but also to invest in others. What Paul had learned from, or what Timothy had learned from Paul, he was then also to entrust to reliable people who were qualified and faithful to continue it on. Timothy was not, nor are we today, to just continue to accumulate believers to come and listen to him teach the word of God. He was instead to be raising up others to also teach, whether alongside him or to take the gospel to other places. Paul is exhorting Timothy to do as he himself had done. If you spend much time hanging around my husband Nathan and I, we will inevitably get off on the topic of church planting. Church planting is near and dear to our hearts. Planning a church, in my opinion, is really this ministry of multiplication at its most effective. And that is something that I can say I see very, very clearly here at Southeast. Um, Calvary Chapel Gresham, Calvary Chapel Oregon City, Calvary Chapel Estacada, those churches were all planted by men who were here at this church with Doug serving alongside this idea that we send people out to other places, we see that here. We also see that Pastor Doug is not, not a pastor who holds this pulpit to himself. We see him giving those opportunities of teaching away to the other pastors on staff. That is something that is really, I think, a beautiful thing. And just as a side note, something that I've really appreciated about our church here. Um, in today's culture, so many churches are centered around big numbers, large crowds, and influence. Mega churches, satellite campuses, and cults of personality Christianity. These are the norm. These large churches often have so many layers between the shepherd and his flock that it really begs the question, how are they able to really care for a flock if they don't know them? A healthy church should be building up teachers and pastors and leaders. A healthy church should be giving others who are gifted and called opportunities to teach. A healthy church should be sending those teachers out to unreached or underchurched areas to continue the spread of the gospel or continue the discipleship of the body. Amassing a large group of qualified teachers in one location, most of whom are not even being utilized, that isn't being a good steward of what God has entrusted to us. This, in many respects, is exactly the opposite of what Paul is instructing Timothy to do. Timothy was to entrust qualified men and allow them the opportunity to teach alongside him and in his absence. 
Now, who were these men? These men that Timothy was to entrust the word needed themselves to be faithful. They needed to be reliable, grounded in the word, and qualified and able or gifted to teach. Realistically, these were probably the very same men Paul instructed Timothy to make elders in his first letter. Those entrusted to teach the word need to be faithful. A faithful man is going to impart the word faithfully. He won't change it. He also won't apologize for it. What were they to teach? The foundational truths of the gospel. For us today, this means the whole Bible, Genesis to Revelation. See, we can fixate on one particular verse we like, and then we can miss the point of that verse entirely because we aren't holding that verse up against the totality of the Bible. This is how false doctrines, like the health and wealth gospel, gain steam. They isolate passages of the Bible, and then they use them, and often misrepresent them, to create an entirely different meaning. I personally really like the process of approaching the Bible with integrated theology for this very reason. We have to determine what the totality of Scripture says. If we have a verse in isolation that we're scratching our head over, we take that verse and we back up to the context of that chapter, of that book, but we also take that verse and we hold it up against every other book of the Bible, every other passage in the Bible that speaks on that subject. Because when we allow the Bible to commentate on itself, it is amazing how clearly we can see not only that verse, but also the big picture message that God is trying to get across to us. Pastor to pastor, Paul is saying to Timothy, you need to be raising up other people who are fully equipped and trained to teach others. Because bottom line, the key ministry of the church is teaching. There is a lot that is consuming and distracting churches today. This can cause us to lose focus on what really matters. The church, just like anything else, can lose focus on its purpose and start placing its focus on all of the extra. Teaching the word of God fully, truthfully, and entirely so that those who don't know can understand and those who understand can grow. That is the main point of the church. This is our why. Paul goes on in verses three through seven to emphasize the point he is making to Timothy through the use of metaphors. All three of these metaphors give us a picture of endurance through pain and discipline of mind and body to produce an outcome. The first we see in verses three through four. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him. In verse three, Paul invites Timothy to share in the hardship and suffering. This is the Greek word sokopathio, which means to suffer hardship together. Paul isn't instructing Timothy to endure something he himself isn't enduring. He also isn't instructing him to endure something that Christ didn't endure. If you are a follower of Christ, suffering is inevitable. John 15, 18 through 20 says, If the world hates you, understand that it hated me first. If you were of the world, it would love you as its own. Instead, the world hates you because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. Remember the word that I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you as well. If they kept my word, they will keep yours as well. As a believer, 
you have to reconcile in your own heart that you are called to suffering. You must be willing to push through that pain. You can't quit. What you are called to do is a matter of life and death. Are we handling this reality like we understand the magnitude of it? Because it was once life or death for us. And now it is life or death for every person we come in contact with who is not a follower of Christ. Are we focused on that or are we focused on other pursuits? The metaphor of a soldier really brings this around to the mission-focused mindset. A soldier experiences suffering. You frankly don't make it out of boot camp if you can't push through the suffering. Why? Because a soldier who needs to be able to stay focused on the task at hand, on his orders, his responsibility, or he is useless to his commanding officer. If you don't take orders, you won't be a good soldier. There are rules for dress, conduct, attire, the way they stand, the words they say. This all speaks to discipline. The same principle applies to us as followers of Christ. If we cannot push through our own feelings and become disciplined in the things of God, we are of no use to our commanding officer. A good soldier learns how to press on for the purpose they have been entrusted. Paul is also speaking specifically to Timothy, the pastor here. It is easy to get off track from the job with the cares of the world. Getting pulled into politics, family drama, other ministry opportunities, getting sidetracked by finances, a soldier is singularly focused. They are not multitaskers. They are about the job at hand. A pastor must also be like this. But those of us who are not pastors should also be like this. Dedication to the word of God is a battle that requires spiritual endurance. If we hope to endure to the end, if we hope to have an impact for the kingdom of God, we cannot be sidetracked by worldly pursuits. The single-mindedness is also for Timothy's benefit. Ministry is hard. Splitting focus makes it almost impossible to do anything well. You just end up with mediocre endeavors. You just end up burned out at the end of the day. Timothy must distinguish the difference between doing good things and doing the best things. This is hard when you are often surrounded by people who have opinions about what you should be doing. Maybe their ideas are even good, but if they are counter to what God has called you to do, to what pleases the one who enlisted you, they aren't where your focus should be. The singleness of focus takes the burden of guilt away from Timothy. He is focusing on what God called him to do, and the other things are not what matter for him, no matter what others in his life might think. The second metaphor we see here is that of an athlete. In verse 5, Paul says, And if someone likewise competes as an athlete, he is, cr- is he not crowned a victor unless he comp- competes according to the rules? An athlete to be competitive in their sport, must be disciplined with practice and lifestyle. The physical pain of training is also suffering that must be pushed through towards their goal. Additionally, an athlete must have integrity to ensure that they are playing by the rules. For an athlete, there are rules for both the immediate competition, but also the training that leads up to this competition. Think anybody you've ever seen with an asterisk next to their name because they took... Um, performance-enhancing drugs. This was not being 
having integrity within their training up to that competition. The emphasis Paul puts on this, that section is that you are playing to win the crown, so you have to follow the rules to win. Every athletic competition has rules and boundaries. All who fail to discipline themselves to observe those rules are disqualified. We must run as to win the crown. For a Christian, this is self-control, endurance, strength, and often suffering, but suffering for that ultimate prize. The final metaphor in verse 6 is that of a farmer. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Paul emphasizes that the farmer is hardworking, not lazy or idle. Farming is hard work. If you leave a field to itself, it's going to produce mostly weeds. Proverbs 24, 30 through 31 says, I went past the field of a slacker and by the vineyard of a man lacking judgment. Thorns had grown up everywhere, thistles had covered the ground, and the stone wall was broken down. A farmer needs to be diligent and patient with his crop. A farmer cannot expect to have growth overnight, but when that harvest does come, both he and those he feeds benefit from the fruit of his labor. This is also Paul speaking directly to Timothy as the pastor. The reward is for the farmer also. Sometimes we can forget that while the focus of ministry is serving and the edification of the body, edification of the body by putting ourselves in that role of bondservant of Christ, by humble, humbling ourselves to serve, we also benefit from the fruit of that service. First of all, we become more like Christ. Secondly, the time and study you put into preparing to teach personally teaches you so much more than what you are able to express to others. Truly, if you ever really want to understand something, teach it to someone else. Additionally, there is so much joy for a teacher in seeing the seeds that they have planted bearing fruit in the lives of others. Ultimately, though, we do need to remember that while we sometimes are able to enjoy the fruits of our labor here on earth, our true reward is eschatological, meaning it's going to be a part of our heavenly reward after the fulfillment of all of Scripture. The farmer who stops working will never see the fruit of his labor. You can only get out of your field what you put into it. This principle applies to your Christian walk. Don't expect maximum results from minimal effort. This is a good reminder, too, that Paul is not talking about salvation here, but glorification. You can be a believer of Jesus, saved by grace, and still running a race like the prize doesn't matter. Still tending a field like the harvest isn't coming. That prize, that harvest, that heavenly reward is a result of the training, the hard work, our sanctification here and now. We are all in training. I just want to ask you this morning, how is your training going? Are you growing in discipline? Are you gaining endurance? From these metaphors, we see Paul outlining traits that we need to have as followers of Christ the willingness to suffer, and the priorities of a soldier, the self-discipline and integrity of an athlete, the work ethic and patience of a farmer. We should not be striving for mediocrity as believers, but for excellence. This is a strong warning for us against being lukewarm. 
Paul concludes his metaphors in verse 7 with this. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. We can often be too quick to turn to a source or an outside explanation. How often do we sit and reflect or just sit and just meditate on the word? Think deeply about what the Bible says. Really chew on it. Think it through. Spend time with it. Wrestle with it. If we are only taking a cursory reading of the Bible, we're only going to have a cursory understanding of the Bible. True understanding comes from that time, that wrestling, that struggle, trying to let the word speak to us. If we don't sit and really dwell on it and really spend time to understand it, we will never understand it deeply. A depth of knowledge, an understanding of the word of God comes from spending time in it and learning it. Ultimately, though, we do need to remember that that understanding comes from the Lord, not from our own minds. Moving into verses 8 through 10, Paul will now shift the focus away from Timothy and back onto the gospel. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. In typical fashion, Paul dumps some really deep and rich theology for us here into verse 8. Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David. Here Paul emphasizes both, both the person of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. These are both pivotal and important. Jesus, descendant of David in the flesh, one of the sons of his body set on his throne, the true Messiah, the one they have been waiting for all this time, fully man of the promised lineage, fulfilling all the Old Testament prophecies. He is the continuation of the promises to Israel. He is their fulfillment. Jesus, risen from the dead, perfect and sinless, he who became sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might have the righteousness of God. He who swallows up death forever and ransoms us from the power of hell. Fully God in his person and in his sacrifice. He is the salvation and the hope for the whole world. Growing up in Texas, we would often hear stories about the Alamo. That was one that they talked about a lot in school. It was a brutal battle. It lasted about 90 minutes and it killed all of the defenders inside. But that battle became the battle cry for all of the Texas Revolution. Remember the Alamo was shouted before battle as a way of motivating the battle-weary Texans. It became a symbol for remembering what you were fighting for, remembering what is at stake. I see Paul's remember Jesus Christ in much the same way. It is a battle cry for Timothy. Remember who you are fighting for. Remember, you are the feet of Jesus spreading the gospel, which was rooted in the past and looks forward to the future because of Jesus. It is for this gospel that Paul is in prison. This was his crime, preaching the word of God. But Paul reminds Timothy, despite his own imprisonment, the word of God is not imprisoned. Many have tried to imprison the Bible. Some have been arrogant enough to think they could succeed. One person is the French philosopher Voltaire. He summed up his view of the Bible in this way. The Bible, that is, what fools have written, what imbeciles commend, what rogues teach, 
and young children are made to learn by heart. He believed in the late 1700s that he was living in the twilight of Christianity and that within 100 years, there would be no more Bibles. My favorite part of his arrogant assertion is that within 16 years of his death, the very printing presses and paper in his hometown that were purchased to print his books were printing Bibles. Within 50 years of his death, his own home was purchased by a group of Christians and used as a distribution hub for Bibles. Now, opposers of the Bible claim none of this ever happened, but research really seems to show that it actually did. And I I spent some time looking at both sides of that argument, and I felt confident that, yeah, I I think this really happened this way. Because God has a sense of humor, and that it it really seems to me like something that he would do. Be like, "Let let me just show you. And you know what? Regardless of whether or not it is actually true that his home was used that way, over 300 years later, here we are doing a Bible study. I don't see anybody studying Voltaire's work like this. The Word of God, it is never imprisoned. It can't be imprisoned. Because even if we were silent, creation would declare his name. The very rocks would cry out. The gospel is bigger than any one person. Paul knew this. He wanted Timothy to remember this. Paul was chained like a criminal, much like Jesus was crucified like a criminal, but the word of God has never been chained. This comes back full circle to verse two, to entrusting the word and teaching to other qualified people. Because Paul knew that if Timothy were also imprisoned, he would just be in the same position as Paul, aware that other men he had trained and instructed were still preaching the word of God and still teaching truth and discipling the body. In verse 10, Paul says this is the reason he endures all things, the gospel of Christ. God's word calls to his people. Paul is merely an instrument of that calling. His attitude is very gospel-focused. If his suffering is what is necessary for the advancement of the gospel, so be it. If the result of his suffering is more people hear the gospel of Jesus and submit their lives to him, what greater purpose is there? Paul is willing to endure whatever it takes. All throughout his letters, Paul acknowledges that his suffering led to the advancement of the gospel. This is his entire focus. Finally, Paul concludes this section of his letter to Timothy with a statement that is familiar to Timothy and to the Ephesians. Perhaps this was a song of worship. It has even been speculated that this might have been a part of their baptism liturgy. Paul says in verses 11 through 13, the statement is trustworthy. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot deny himself. This is actually one of my favorite passages in the Bible. I'm a little excited to be teaching these verses this morning. But to understand these verses, I'm going to have to get a little nerdy and start breaking down some grammatical elements. So I apologize to those of you that are like, oh no, she's going to talk about English. I didn't do great in school. I'm going to do it. It'll be short. But I feel like it really gives some context to the way that this is written. This statement includes four couplets making up conditional clauses. Conditional clauses are just literary devices that are used to express cause and effect relationships. These are basically if-then statements. 
There are many conditional clauses in the Bible. For example, John 8:51 says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. If you keep my word, then you will never see death. Understand how that works? Second Chronicles 7:14, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Within these statements, we see the action God promises as a result of the choice or behavior of the people. Within verses 11 through 13, there are four conditional clauses. The first two are positive, the third is negative, and then the fourth is both positive and negative. These conditional clauses also contain some intentional paradoxes. For example, death leads to life, suffering leads to reigning in glory. Each conditional clause has a protasis, this is the if statement, that describes the action of the believer, and they also have an apodosis, the then statement, that describes the result in terms of either Christ's individual action or his joint action with us as believers. So now that we have established that template, let's break down these clauses. The first clause says, for if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we died with him, then we will live with him. Here is the first paradox. In order to live, we must die. If we choose to die with Christ, we can inherit the kingdom of God and live with him. The manner of death Paul is describing here, though, is important. This speaks of death to self, not death of self. Paul is not instructing Timothy towards martyrdom. Instead, this is a reference to the death of our sin nature, to our old self. We have to stop pursuing our fleshly desires and place our mind on the things above. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Romans 6.8, now if we had died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. If we are willing to die to our own desires and worldly ambition, we will live eternally with Jesus. This is a pretty big promise. The second clause says, if we endure, we will also reign with him. If we endure, then we will reign with him. Now, what must we endure? Suffering, persecution, trials, being misunderstood by the world. Endurance is staying loyal even in suffering. It's staying loyal even if it costs you everything. Endurance demands continued loyalty. It promises victory in the end for the faithful believers. We will participate in the reign of glorification with the glorified Messiah. How do we endure? With the focus of a soldier, the discipline of an athlete, and the work ethic of a farmer. This clause focuses on the parallel between our suffering here and our future glorification with Christ. Revelation 3.21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Romans 8.27, I'm sorry, 17. 
And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The next two clauses speak to the process of salvation. The third clause says, if we deny him, he will also deny us. If we deny him, then he will deny us. This is a heavy warning. To understand this clause, we have to really understand salvation. We tend to think of salvation as a one-time event. We believe, accept, confess, and then we are saved. This is not really a complete or accurate picture of salvation. Salvation is a process. At the time of our initial salvation, we are justified by Christ. This is that sinner prayer moment and that we reference as our point of salvation. When this submission of will is genuine, this process seals our justification in Christ. We are cleansed of our sin and we are joined to the body of Christ. Then we begin the process of sanctification. This is where we continue daily, hourly, moment by moment to submit our will to God and grow in maturity. This is where we learn more about God through our personal devotional life. This is where we are discipled and then learn to disciple. The process of sanctification takes our whole lives. This is us becoming more and more like Jesus. Frankly, some are more sanctified than others. This is not a special gift God gives to some and not to others. This is a matter of choice. We choose the things of this world over the things of God. We choose comfort over growth. We choose to be less sanctified. The final stage of salvation is glorification. This is our reward. We don't get to be glorified with Christ until we see him again in heaven. Then we will be perfect. Then we will be restored to him. Those who are in the process of sanctification are God's elect. In John 10, 27 through 30, Jesus says, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. No one can remove us from God's hand, not even ourselves. Salvation is eternally secure. When Paul says, if you deny him, he isn't talking about someone who temporarily denies Christ. This makes me think of Peter after Jesus' crucifixion. He denied Jesus three times. Jesus told him ahead of time that he would do it, and he still did it. Even with the warning, he totally still did it. Now, do we think Peter didn't make it to heaven because of this denial? Absolutely not. That wasn't the heart of Peter. He loved Jesus. He believed in Jesus. He just messed up. This is actually one of those things that we tend to really appreciate the most about Peter, because frankly, he messes up a lot. And it makes us feel like we can relate to him. The denial that causes us to be denied by Christ is apostasy. This is an intentional denial. This is the falling away that we talked about a few weeks ago back in 1 Timothy 4. Christ will deny those who professed to be his children, but then dissociated themselves from Christ. Matthew 10, 33, but whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Mark 8, 38, 
For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when it comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. We cannot reasonably think that we can deny Christ here on earth and be welcomed by him in heaven. Yet sadly, many live their lives like this is exactly what they expect when they get to heaven. We cannot deny Christ to avoid persecution and expect to reign with him in glory. We cannot sell out our faith for worldly pleasures or acceptance and think that this does not have eternal implications. If we endure, then we will reign. If we deny, then we will be denied. Finally, the fourth, and in my humble opinion, the best of the clauses. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Even if we are faithless, then he remains faithful. We will prove unfaithful. Every one of us will fall short. We cannot help it. We are all wretched sinners saved by grace. But God cannot be anything but faithful. So even though we as followers of Christ, as true believers in his deity and his power, are incapable of constant faithfulness, that amazing grace of God we talked about at the beginning of this passage sustains us. It bridges the gap between our faithlessness and his faithfulness. This is different from apostasy. Our faithlessness is not a permanent state. Sometimes it's just a fleeting moment. Sometimes we truly are just the prodigal son in need of reunion with our Heavenly Father. Either way, our falling away from faithfulness does not change God's faithfulness. We need to be clear that, though, this verse is often misquoted and misused to imply that we can do whatever we want because God will come through on our behalf. This is not license to sin. This is not permission to be unfaithful. This is a promise that God's faithfulness is not dependent upon us. J. Hudson Taylor said, it is not by trying to be faithful, but in looking to the faithful one that we win in victory. It is Christ's faithfulness that is imputed upon us. Our temporary doubt our temporary unbelief, these things do not change the nature of God. God is faithful. He cannot be unfaithful. He cannot deny himself. He is faithful. His faithfulness will sustain us through our faithlessness. This, this speaks to the immutable nature of God. God cannot change. Malachi 3, 6 for I, the Lord, do not change. James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Numbers 23.19, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? God is unchanging and unchangeable. God is faithful. The statement is trustworthy. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. 
If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just, we come before you today just in awe of your faithfulness, in awe of of who you are and who you allow us to be in you, God. And we just thank you that we can rely on the fact that you're not going to change. The things that you have promised or the things that you have said, they're going to remain. And that these are things that we can stake our whole lives on. We can stake everything that we love on you because you are worth our entrusting of everything. You are able to keep us and to sustain us, God. You are faithful. And I just pray as we, we move forward from the study and into our small groups that the reality of who you are and your, your nature and your character just it follows us into those conversations, that we can, we can discuss you and your faithfulness and we can build up one another and we can dive into this passage together and we can just enjoy and appreciate the fact that you've given us your word to understand you, God, and that this time together this morning would just help us to grow closer to you and to one another and to understand you better. In your precious son's name, amen.